This is The Visible Hand, a podcast about organizations, economics, and management. My name is Jordi Blanes Vidal, and I am an associate professor at the Department of Management, London School of Economics. My guest today is Namrata Kala, an assistant professor of economics at the MIT Sloan School of Management. Today, we are going to talk about her paper, Management and Shocks to Worker Productivity, with Aj Arvalu and Anand Naishadam. Hello, Namrita. Welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. This is my very first podcast. Namrita, can you start just by briefly telling us what does this paper do? Absolutely. So this paper is part of a broader agenda that my co-authors and I have on trying to understand the role of environmental factors and managerial factors in productivity. And so the first thing that we establish in this paper is that air pollution levels in Bangalore, India, which is where the, the data for the paper comes from, is very high. And this air pollution meaningfully affects productivity for workers. The second thing that we establish is that by reallocating what workers are doing on the production line in the garment factory, some managers, the more attentive ones, can mitigate the negative impact of air pollution on productivity. And that's really the, the centerpiece of the paper, is to say that environmental factors can meaningfully reduce productivity, but high-quality managers can mitigate the entire negative effect of these factors. Okay. I, I think there are two parts there. The first part is obviously interesting in this setting. If the environment is terrible, then worker productivity is going to go down. One might think that if other things happen, worker productivity might also go down. So workers becoming sick or the task being more difficult, lots of things. The second part says that managers that are attentive, that are of high quality, are able to mitigate this decrease in productivity that happens at the worker level. The illustration or the application here is on shocks that come from environmental factors, but presumably this lesson here is more general than that. That is, any other shock that may take place to worker productivity, regardless of what is the cause of that shock, may also potentially be mitigated by managers, correct? Absolutely. And in particular, by managerial attention. So if managers are attentive when bad shocks are happening to their workers, then they are able to mitigate that by engaging in behaviors that are mitigative, such as changing who's doing what on the production line in this case. But we absolutely think of the broader lesson of this paper as being about the role of management in mitigating shocks. So are good managers good also because when things go bad, they are able to deal with it better? Can you tell us about the setting in which this study takes place? Because obviously, while in principle, one may think that these type of forces apply in a variety of settings, not every setting is going to give you the fine-tuned variation, the ability to collect data that allows you to document this uh, in, a, you know, in a convincing and precise way. What is the setting here? Sure. So the setting here is a garment factory in the city of Bangalore. And the partner that we collected this data with is one of the largest exporters of garments in India, which means that they have a very large workforce 
that is engaged in production in a very regularized manner, which, as you pointed out, do make it particularly conducive to collecting high-frequency data on productivity, what everyone is doing, etc. So that's the setting of the paper. It's a, a garment factory in Bangalore. What do workers do in this factory? How are they organized? You talked earlier about managers. Who are the managers? What are their roles? So production in the factory is organized at the production line level. So when you enter the factory, what you see are sort of scores of production lines that are organized in in straight lines with about 60 to 70 workers on each production line. And essentially, many workers are doing different things. So think about, you know, a garment factory or a production line that's making a t-shirt. One worker will be making the collar for the shirt. One worker might be sewing buttons and so on. And so it's a production line setting where workers are doing a heterogeneity of different tasks and their direct supervisor is the line level supervisor, which are the managers of our setting. And so these line supervisors essentially allocate workers to tasks and then make sure that the production line is achieving its production targets. And so that is pretty much within the day, their entire role is to make sure that the line is achieving productivity targets. And if it's not, to try to do something about that. So if I think of a tailored type of production function, an assembly line in some other type of manufacturing process in which there are workers in a line and there are some parts that are passing through a conveyor belt and the first worker has a hammer and the second one and screws something. The lines that you are describing somewhat resemble this in that the materials are coming from one side of the line. They are ending on the other end as fully sewed garments. And then there is a variety of tasks that convert that cloth into garments that are undertaken in a sequential way. Is that the way, right way to think about this? That's exactly right. The only detail that's perhaps worth pointing out here is that typically what passes along the production line rather than one garment at a time is a bundle of garments. So if you and I are on the production line and you are passing garments to me, you pass them in bundles of 15 or 20. So if I just kind of look away for a minute, you know, it's not that the entire line goes away. But that's the conveyor belt analogy is a great one. So so typically factories um, are somewhat uh, isolated from the external environment, at least in developed economies. There is not a lot of relation between whether it's raining or it is windy outside and the productivity of the workers inside the factory. But you were talking earlier about environmental shocks. What type of environmental shocks could here be affecting the productivity of these workers who are suing garments? That's a great question. And indeed, there's more recent work now that's trying to understand the role of factors like extreme temperature, high air pollution levels, on workers' productivity, absenteeism, and so on across not just India, but also China and other developing countries. So Quantifying this is a pretty active area of research right now. In this paper, we focus on fine particulate matter, which is a very common air pollutant. Uh, And so that's what we're interested in here. But absolutely, the windows of the factory are open. And so the source of the pollution really is coming from traffic. And so it's insulated from external conditions to a certain degree in the sense that if it's raining, the workers are not getting wet on the production line. But extreme heat and air pollution is something that we can reasonably expect 
might be affecting productivity. If there is a lot of pollution, the workers are coughing all the time and therefore they cannot work as, as fast? Or So again, that is a really great question. And we spend a lot of interesting hours. Like I spend a lot of interesting hours reading about how air pollution exactly in the very short term can affect cognition and productivity. And there's some lab experimental work that shows that even very short run amounts of air pollution affects cognitive outcomes, even if the worker or the the subject is not asthmatic or coughing all the time. And it does so by sort of entering the airways, uh, blocking the supply of blood to the brain. It can increase inflammation markers in the body, etc. And so it can lead you to make errors and be less productive, even if it's not caused by just coughing all the time. But should we think of suing a garment as a cognitive task? Or, or not, because when you talk about cognitive, I'm thinking of solving a Sudoku. But I don't know whether, I mean, obviously you need to think as well about suing, but it's not exactly the same. Oh, yes. And in fact, it's something that the needle is coming down depending on the task that you're doing at a reasonably high frequency. So attention and focused attention can be quite, quite important. And indeed, what we find in the analysis is that we can classify tasks into tasks that are harder or easier depending on how long it takes to do a particular task. So find bit of embroidery is a more complicated thing to do than just an automated button sewing operation. And what we find is that workers engaged in more complex tasks are more affected during an air pollution shock. Okay, so we are talking here about the setting in which this study is taking place. You have just mentioned that a priori before you get into the data, but there are reasons to believe that air pollution might be decreasing the productivity of these workers here. That, as you said, is the first part of the study or, or the first leg of, actually, a chair will not stay with two legs, but okay, the first part of the study. The second is that this is mitigated by uh, managers being able to allocate uh, workers across tasks. Can you tell us, absent these environmental shocks, how do managers allocate workers to all these stations that do different tasks in this assembly line? Absolutely. And so what the way that this happens is that first thing in the morning, a manager assesses how many workers have come to work and what are the different tasks that need to be done on the production line for the garment that they're making that day. As it turns out, there might, of course, be absenteeism vary from day to day. Once the manager assesses this uh, and assesses each worker's capability, so remember, there might be low-skilled workers on the production line who can't do everything, and there might be high-skilled workers on the production line that a manager does not want to allocate to very easy tasks. So there's a first allocation problem that the manager solves, and then throughout the day, if the production line is falling behind, the manager considers reallocating workers to, to tasks to maintain productivity. So that's the manager's allocation problem. So if we start the day and there is one task that is the last task in that assembly line. So if I was a manager, I wouldn't put immediately a worker in that place because it's going to take a while for the garments to reach that station. I will take that worker at the end of the line and make him or her, you know, help at the beginning of the line so that the garments start to flow as quickly as possible. Is that the type of reallocation that takes place during the day 
again, absence the environmental shocks or? So there are sort of helper workers that do what you're describing, is that they'll be assigned the initially at the beginning and then wherever there are bottlenecks. Most of the production workers are sort of seated and performing one task and the garments start flowing reasonably fast. So it's like in the first hour of production, we see a healthy amount of productivity already happening. And so given that this is like a 65 to 70% production line, reallocating too often is not advised. You said that there are 60 to 70 workers per line. Is there only one supervisor? It depends. So there are between one and three supervisors. So the very long lines have up to three, but most have one or two. Do the workers and the supervisors switch across lines? So the supervisors do not switch across lines. They're assigned their own line. In the beginning of the day, occasionally, you know, it might happen that a manager says, my absenteeism is worse today than I thought. Jordi, can I borrow a worker today? You might say yes, you might say no. So there might be some switching of workers at the first hour of the day. Once the allocations are fixed, there's no switching that happens across the, the production lines typically. That's very rare. And that's, sorry, that's within the day, but across days, there can be. There can be, yes. But not for the supervisors. Not for the supervisors, exactly. Okay, so uh, presumably you are going to have data on productivity, pollution, etc. Can you tell us what are all the different sources of data that you have to establish these patterns? Absolutely. So we have three main sources of data and you know we have additional data sources uh, that I'd love to talk about, but let me just first tell you what the three main sources are. The first is data at the worker hourly level on productivity and task allocation. And so here, what for each hour of the day, we observe the task that a worker is engaged in and what their productivity is, which we define as the amount that you produced of a certain quantity divided by the target of that quantity. So if my hourly target was to sew 60 buttons and I sew 30, my productivity is 0.5. And so that's our main measure of productivity. And then, as I said, we have task allocation data as well. The second data source is uh, about managers and their managerial characteristics, their age, as well as survey measures of attentiveness, tenure, cognitive ability, etc. And then the third data source is, of course, on air pollution, where we installed five air pollution monitors across two floors in the factory that upload data every couple of minutes. And so we have very high frequency data on that as well. So you say that you have data on what every worker does in every hour. You call it like task allocation. Exactly. So this is like, a, I don't know, the pocket or the collar or, or whatever. But is the task allocation perfectly correlated with the seat or the station where the worker is at one point in the line? Or can you do the same type of task sitting in different places in the line? It's the latter. So for example, what is a very common feature of this production line as well is that you might have, depending on the garment that you're sewing, you might have three workers that are sewing buttons, right? Like sitting next to each other or dispersed across the line. It's also possible that for some garments, the line is divided into sub lines where there's like sub assembly line versions of a main production line. So the, the exact organization may vary depending on the order, but task allocation is not perfectly predictive of the position in the line. I am asking this because you have started to talk about how managers can alleviate the negative impacts of environmental shocks by giving different tasks to different workers. 
something else that they could do is keep the task of the existing worker who is potentially suffering, but manage the location where they are sitting. For instance, if the pollution is coming from outside, I may put the worker further away from the window or something like that. I see. Okay. Yeah. Thank you for clarifying that. So what? So we've tried and we're not met with great success in terms of trying to predict exactly where pollution is at any given point in time. And that's because once we control for things like day of the week and the hour of the day, it's pretty idiosyncratic where pollution is going to be. So it's actually not that one particular seat is the more pollution prone one once we kind of control for certain factors. And so it, it is a rather idiosyncratic process of where pollution is going to be at any given point in time. You are talking about managerial attention that you are getting from this survey of the managers. How do you get that? You ask them, are you attentive or are you not? And then it's a binary question there? Or? Yeah, so that's a good question. So we combine two measures of attention to create this measure of managerial attention. The first is asking them, how frequently do you monitor the line? So how frequently do you walk up and down the line and observe the workers who are producing and like just make sure everything is going well? And there's six or seven possible responses that they could give, ranging from I walk up and down the line every 10 minutes to I almost never do it. I just kind of stand in one place or I do it you know, every few days, etc. So that's the first piece, which is just how attentive are you in terms of monitoring your workers? The second piece is trying to understand how actively they manage their personnel in general. So it includes survey questions like, to what extent do you try to retain high-performing workers? To what extent do you try to help low-performing workers? And of course, one concern when we started measuring this is, you know, we would, why wouldn't everyone say, I walk up and down the line all the time and I care so much about my workers, but there is actually a lot of heterogeneity in the answers. So, and I think part of that is that we just spend so much time in the garment factories that they didn't see the point in the social desirability, which was helpful. Okay, wonderful. So with this data, you are talking about two broad pieces of evidence. The first one is that pollution decreases worker productivity. Can you tell us how do you show that? What is the empirical strategy to, to show the, presumably it's a, obviously a causal effect of pollution and productivity? Certainly. So, you know, we regress hourly productivity on a fine particulate matter uh, measure. So it's essentially a pollution measure. We control for environmental factors like temperature, another measure of pollution that may be produced during the garment production process, which is coarse particulate matter. And we include not just worker fixed effects, but also year by month, by day of the week, by hour fixed effects. So we're really saying in a given month on a Friday at 9 a.m., if a worker has a pollution shock, are they less productive? So that's the first way that we show that pollution has a negative effect. The fact that we have hourly data on each worker. So we have you know, almost 800 to 900 observations on average for a worker and we have pollution. It means that we can actually estimate worker level pollution sensitivities and we show that they're very close to our average effect, but they are rather heterogeneous, which we thought was quite fascinating. So you're saying on a regular Friday between six and seven on that year and then on that month, but you have more than that even in your regressions. You have on that year, on that month, on that Friday, between five and six, which means that after you do that, you are comparing two workers who are working at exactly the same point in time. Precisely. Uh, one of them further from the window at a time at which being far from the window is worse, another one close from the window. 
So you can put anything, any shock that may be happening at a firm uh, level uh, that affects everybody at the same time. That's exactly right. And we also show that this worker level measure of how sensitive you are to pollution depends pretty intuitively on things that the prior literature has said might be important, like did you go to the health clinic with a related symptom, as well as things that we might, given our knowledge of the setting, think might be important, like were you working on a really complicated task at the time that pollution happened? So one thing that I noticed in reading about your measure of pollution is that it seems a bit coarse. That is, you have 10 lines, say 60 workers per line. Is that is that correct? So 600 workers and you have five monitors. Mm-hmm. So if you measure the pollution suffered by a worker as what is the fine particulate matter in the monitor that is the closest to that worker, that's actually not the pollution in the seat of the worker. There, there is potential for a lot of measurement error in there, right? Also because the way that the internal wind patterns may be affecting the seat of the worker may be very different from the ones that are affecting the monitor. Because as you said, everything is highly idiosyncratic and so on and so forth. So presumably, whatever estimates you are going to tell me that you have, the real effects will be higher. Yes, that's exactly right. And so the way that we mapped it, so in the in the 17 lines with the you know 65 to 70 workers, the way that we mapped it is exactly right. It's like just what is the monitor that you're closest to? And we can kind of explore that in a variety of different manner. But as you pointed out, sort of the measurement error will attenuate towards zero in that if it's higher, and the the true effect should, if anything, be higher. Your claim here for the causality of the correlation between pollution and worker productivity is something that after you put some controls for at the time level that are, and presumably also at the line level or that, that you put, it's a it's quite intuitive and it's difficult to have a lot of qualms about, right? The fact that there happens to be more pollution here or there. Now, once you start saying that certain workers are more affected by this pollution than others, like it is intuitive as well that if you are older or you have a bronchitis, then it's going to affect you more. Or you are going to tell us later that managers are endogenously reallocating workers whenever there is pollution. So if I was a manager and I have a friend among the workers, whenever there is high pollution, I may want to say, well, my friend, let's just put him here, you know, away from all the coughing. And I will put my enemies as close to the coughing as possible. Right. So that in some sense is already like creating a little bit of a cloud over your ability to say that some workers are, you know, more prone to suffering from these things than others. It could be that they are the ones who are put in the front line whenever there is a common enemy arriving. Oh, yeah. So there's a, there's a couple of things there that I think are, are quite neat. And so the first is this worker level pollution sensitive measure. I think you're absolutely right is that it's possible that there's some level of favoritism, etc. Because on average, it correlates very intuitively with things that the ex-ante thought would matter, like health symptoms and uh, the complexity of the task, which is mostly predicted by your skill level. 
low-skilled workers typically don't get assigned to very complex tasks, I think is a bit reassuring. The other thing uh, I think that's helpful here is that we did a survey with the managers where we asked them how important do you think pollution is to productivity and how important do you think environmental factors are? And 70% of managers said that they did not think environmental factors were relevant at all. And the other 20 or 29% or whatever said that they thought only extreme heat was lowering productivity. So the way that we think about this story is less that, you know, there's a productivity shock and managers said, oh, productivity is really high. Let me take my friend away from the window. But rather that managers get to know that there are production bottlenecks by consulting the productivity data that they're observing over the course of the day, as well as by walking around. And indeed, when we ask them, how do you know people are falling behind? That's what they say. And almost no one said that the workers tell me or that I think environmental factors are, are relevant. This is like the tennis players who don't need to be physicists and understand velocity and mass and everything, but they just know how to hit the ball. Precisely. Okay, so that's the first piece of evidence. The second piece of evidence that you're going to tell us about is that managers are able to mitigate these uh, negative effects of environmental factors on productivity. I guess that one starting point there will have to be that in general, whenever there is some negative shock, broadly speaking, um, the, the company in general or the firm or managers on average react by reallocating tasks, correct? Yes, indeed. And we find that also that if there are production bottlenecks, that that is indeed what happens even if we're not thinking about pollution. Exactly. So your measure of task reallocation is a relatively uh, generous measure because you have like 60, as you said, 60 workers and your measure of that reallocation is whether at least one worker out of the 60 was reallocated. So whenever there's just a little bit, you already count it as task reallocation. You could in principle have like a continuous measure. That's right. So conditional on reallocating one worker, typically usually two get reallocated because you're moving them around. And so, of course, so we could have a more continuous measure that I'm, I'm not actually sure whether we tried, but we could certainly try that. We I should point out that the theoretical prediction for this is ex ante not clear because one thing that came out of our discussions with managers is that too frequent a reallocation is bad productivity. So ideally, you want to do a reallocation that is as parsimonious as possible, but given in the face of a shock uh, and more reallocation can even in the shock is not necessarily better. So you're saying there is some inverted U uh, relation and uh, you, ha- you have to be somewhere in the middle and the peak is higher whenever there is some negative productivity shock. Exactly. First piece of evidence, pollution decreases worker productivity. Second, typically, whenever there is pollution, managers react by reallocating workers across tasks. Presumably, if there is pollution and one worker is taken out of some very cognitively demanding task, well, that task is going to be given to somebody else whose productivity is going to decrease, right? So in principle, it's not necessarily that we are better off following that reallocation. Do we find that we are better off on average uh, whenever tasks are reallocated as a result of the negative shock in productivity? So on average, that's correct because as we were discussing, the way that the reallocation is done by more attentive managers is precisely to mitigate that negative shock that the line is 
going through. You're absolutely right that if I'm doing a difficult task and now you have to do it, perhaps your productivity will fall initially. And so the line level average is unclear. But that's where we think that the, the worker level sensitivity is actually helpful, is that managers are managing a heterogeneity of workers who are capable of doing different things and also vulnerable differently to the shock. And that's actually what generates these opportunities for reallocation. If there is a lot of pollution and that worker with bronchitis is coughing a lot and their productivity went down by 80%, I take them out, put a younger worker. The younger worker is 20% less productive, but that's obviously better than having a worker who is 80% less productive. That is where the heterogeneity plays a role here, correct? That's exactly right. And what we find also is that when we look at the effects, the line level effects of pollution on productivity, the lines that have more opportunity for reallocation suffer less, which is consistent with the opportunity for reallocation, which is then leveraged by better managers mitigating the effects. What is an opportunity for reallocation? An opportunity for reallocation at that line day level is how many workers on average can I move around? So again, remember that not every worker is capable of doing every task. And so if workers are perfectly substitutable across the line, then that's the most number of opportunities for reallocation. If it's perfectly Leontief, then there are no opportunities for reallocation. And the truth usually lies somewhere in the middle. Okay, so you're saying that there is an interaction between the decrease in productivity at the line level whenever there is a negative environmental shock and the opportunities for reallocation of that line that have to do with how constrained that manager is. That is, exactly. if the manager is very constrained, then whenever there is some negative shock, I cannot do anything. So we have to take it. If I can reallocate because I can move around these people, then I can mitigate this. So these opportunities for reallocation are also correlated with how many highly demanding tasks I have, uh, we are doing right now in the line, right? Because presumably a worker with high skills can always be relocated to do a low skill task, but not the other way around. So if I have a lot of high skill tasks, that means that I cannot relocate. But you told us earlier that if I have a lot of high skill tasks, then the effects of pollution are higher. So the interaction with opportunities for reallocation is somewhat confounded there with the number of high skill tasks that I have. And both of them are predicting the same, which is that, that heterogeneity of the effect from the, of, the, of the negative shock. Exactly. And that's why we sort of want to test the, how managers respond, because these managers on average have very similar team compositions. And so similar worker, similar pollution sensitive workers. So do they respond differentially or not? But but you're right that on average, some workers are older, but also doing different things. And so two workers of the same age, one who is doing a harder task than the other might be differentially affected. And that also might be correlated with how many times I can move around the worker for sure. Let's move now to what you said earlier is like the really the core of the paper, which is that the decrease in productivity is lower, the decrease in productivity following this pollution shock, 
is lower when these uh, managers are paying more attention to what is going on in, in the line. So here, obviously, as we said earlier, we are talking about productivity at the line level because higher managerial attention managers are going to increase the productivity of some workers, decrease it for others. So what we are looking here is at the overall effect, correct? Exactly. So what type of regression do you have here to, to capture this idea? So here we're regressing line level productivity in a given hour, which is measured as the average across all workers, which is what the employer cares about and um, what determines the most number of garments that are actually completed by the line. So the average of worker productivity in a given hour, and we regress that on fine pollution, so uh, fine particulate matter interacted with managerial attention. And then we have a specification that's very similar to our worker level measure in that we have year by month, by day of the week, by hour fixed effects, as well as line fixed effects, which is collinear with managerial attention. So in some sense, that is the, if you want the reduced form, because you have on the right hand side, the initial input on the left hand side, the output, higher managerial attention, they lead to a lower decrease in productivity when there is a negative uh, pollution shock. But of course, your mechanism is one in which this reduced form correlation is operating through the channel of the fact that these high manager attention managers are actually reallocating workers. Do you have yes. any evidence of that? Yes. So we showed that if we run the exact same regression with allocation on the left-hand side. So if we look at, was a worker reallocated from this line relative to the last hour? And we regress it on fine particulate matter interacted with managerial quality, along with all of our controls, we find a positive effect. So in the face of a higher pollution shock, more attentive managers are more likely to reallocate workers. You have there two regressions that obviously together, they make a lot of sense. There seems to be something about some managers that make them take a certain action more often and then achieve better results as a final output. Every time that we try to isolate a certain characteristic of some individual, and here I'm including gender also, right? Like uh, there are lots of studies on gender where gender may be correlated with other characteristics of the individuals. Every time that we do that, the question is always, well, it could there be something else that is driving the effect that is correlated with this? Were you worrying about this or do you have any evidence to mitigate this type of concern? Yeah, so that's a great question. And I think there's sort of two parts to it. The first is, are more attentive managers also managers that have, say, higher tenure? And that's what is leading to this productivity and reallocation effect. So there, what we do is add a lot of controls and find that our coefficient doesn't move at all. What we also find is that when we add other managerial controls, only managerial attention has this positive predictive effect on task reallocation that's statistically significant. And so other things that we think might be driving this positive reallocation, mitigating productivity, don't seem to be predicting uh, as other managerial characteristics, sorry, do not seem to be predicting that as much. We also look at sort of bounding on unobservables and find that a uh, 
if there are unobserved characteristics of these managers, the selection on that would have to be several times more between three and 280 times, depending on the specification that we have to explain the effect that we find. So that's kind of the first piece where are these sort of attentive managers also more autonomous or higher cognitive ability, etc. The second piece of this, of course, is that even if we think that it is really managerial attention that's driving this, well, perhaps attentive managers are walking up and down the line and they just like workers feel more comfortable coming to them and saying, I'm not doing so well, can you please reallocate me, etc. And so we did a survey of managers where we just asked them not just how do you find out who's behind, but also how do you respond? So do you say give a worker a mask or something, which would also have a similar effect when you reallocate them. And there what we find is 96% of managers said that when they find a, a worker who's struggling, the most common thing they do is reallocate them. And the second most common thing is do nothing and just wait for the shock to subside. And what we also find is that when we ask managers sort of how they find out how they're struggling, they say by walking up and down the line. So I think there's both the effect of different characteristics as well as the effect of is this a bundled intervention along with reallocation that's driving the productivity effect that was a cause for concern. So this is all very good. Probably I shouldn't say this because I asked the question, but in some (laughs) sense, I didn't really care what the answer was. That is... (laughs) You know, whether the effect is coming from the people who answer in a certain way to your survey or not, I don't find it so important. Like you have identified a certain action that for whatever reason certain people take that is mitigating the negative effect of these shocks. Like imagine that instead you said, you know, we ask them and the people that work on the production floor don't seem to be the ones that are reallocating, but the ones with higher cognitive ability are. And this is because what you need in order to understand how to reassign successfully workers whenever there are bottlenecks is cognitive ability rather than seeing with your eyes that there are bottlenecks. That's also fine. There's no problem with that, right? It's not... It's not that I think that you are necessarily, you know, requiring a certain very precise channel here, right? Like anything that causes your action, I, I think is, is equally interesting in some sense. I agree that that, you know, if we had found that, in fact, more attentive managers, not just reallocate workers, but are also just nicer to them and that drives an effect, I think that would all have been quite, quite interesting, certainly. But I'm also glad to hear that from someone that's not me. So. Right. So. The the other thing that that you haven't told us is whether managerial attention is correlated with tenure. So I think it is, but not by very much. And so the the correlation with other managerial characteristics, I don't remember exactly what it is, but it's in the paper and it's just not very high overall. Like if we were to think that there is this characteristic about these managers that makes them so valuable. Uh, You haven't told us that presumably the firm is going to earn a lot of profits by substituting all low managerial attention managers with high managerial attention managers. If there is this characteristic that is so valuable for managers, then the the next question will be, well, how can we get more of those? Uh, And you're telling us that it's not through tenure. 
I don't think it's through tenure, but I, and now I'm talking about stuff that's not in the paper, but I want to believe this is something that we can train people in, but I don't actually have any evidence off the top of my head for that. But I think another recommendation that we might have is, well, let's try to train people to be more attentive or let's incentivize them in, in different ways, of course. Let me go back to the numbers here, the, the orders of magnitude here, okay? So you said there are 60 workers per line. Whenever there is a shock, task relocation starts counting. If I move uh, one person, which is obviously typically two people, they switch Mm -hmm. position. I haven't asked you about the economic magnitude of these effects, but let's just, as a shortcut, let's say they are large. If you don't relocate, the negative effect on productivity is, is much larger than if you relocate or substitute a manager by another type of manager and so on. When you look at a production line of 60 people and you are measuring the relocation of two workers, my guess would be the effects are going to be so small there that statistically you're not going to pick them up and definitely they're not going to be of any type of economic magnitude. If a worker is suffering in terms of their productivity and I substitute a worker by a worker that is also going to suffer but less, that difference is really not going to be picked up once I aggregate their productivity with the productivity of the other 58 workers in that line. And yet somehow you manage to statistically find an effect there, right? Absolutely. We do find an effect there. And I think part of the reason is that, you know, we have lots and lots of hourly observations and so statistical power is a bit less of a concern than it usually is, although it's never not a concern, of course. So I think that the the data help a lot. And I also, what we also find is that these these small productivity changes, so, you know, the the productivity effects of a 0.5 percentage point or a 0.4 percentage point at the hourly level, if you, given the frequency of these air pollution shocks, really add up. So it's not even so much that there's low frequency, high impact shocks, but that there's lots and lots of these smaller shocks that add up to a high uh, number that are driving the effect on the magnitude of the costs of pollution for this firm. So one other question that I had is, you said earlier, there are three up to three supervisors per line. My expectation would be that if it is just, let's say, two of us, if you walk through the production floor, then I don't have to walk, right? So there is a suitability there between high and low managerial attention. Or in some sense, you probably do the mean here of the managerial attention of all the supervisors in the line. But I would have thought that maybe the max is what you need because with one of them is sufficient to monitor this thing. Yeah, that's a good point. We didn't try the max. The reason we went for the mean essentially is that despite several attempts to figure out if one supervisor was always responsible for a particular part of the line, etc., we basically couldn't come up with a definitive answer. Like it seems that we really are co-managing a line if we're doing it together. Hence the the need for like an averaging effect. But you're right, perhaps it's the, the max that has a different effect that we we didn't look at what could. Okay, so it is great to have high attention managers. Obviously, it will be, I guess, relatively easy to, you know, say, well, what if we had more high attention managers in the firm? How much money will the firm make? 
Do you do some type of analysis along these lines? Yes, we do. And, you know, it, of course, it involves certain assumptions and we aggregate over some time period, etc. But the back of the envelope that we use essentially assumes that if everyone is a high attention manager, this would save the firm in the ballpark of $100,000 a year, which is, which is huge. And as I said, it's essentially driven by the fact that these shocks are high frequency and have these effects over over a large period of time. I am glad to hear that this is the reason because you could have said, see, it would have saved the firm a lot of money just because the firm is very big, right? So if you have a small effect that you multiply by infinite, you will end up with a very big number. But what you're saying is it's not the fact that the firm is very big, it's the fact that these shocks are happening a lot, uh, at least in this setting. Yes, these shocks are, are highly frequent in this setting, absolutely. So this brings me to, in some sense, the, the beginning, uh, which is when we're talking about the contribution of, of this paper, you were saying, well, we are talking here about how managerial characteristics can mitigate the environmental impacts on productivity. I, I can see that in Bangalore, which must be heavily polluted, it's not really a good idea to have a textile factory. You should have it probably in the countryside. And in that environment, clearly it's going to be terrible to have this type of pollution. Of course, I work in an office and I don't think that pollution is affecting me so much. I would expect that for many people, this is the same case. I gave you earlier the example of even in manufacturing processes in developed countries, probably we're able to close the windows and have air conditioning systems and so on. Is this a big literature to which you are, are contributing? Because probably in developing economies, that's important, but in other settings, probably this is less important. Yes. So, you know, certainly to, to clarify, our primary contribution is trying to understand what makes good managers good including the timing of when they can really bring their talents to bear on a problem, right? And so what we find is that attentive managers are the same as everyone else during low pollution regimes, but it's when a shock hits that they are really able to reallocate workers and to mitigate that, that effect. So I think that's absolutely the primary contribution. Of course, the shocks that we're able to study are environmental shocks because they give us this nice exogenous variation in productivity. I should say that this question of where factories in the developing world should be located and how production should be organized is a fascinating literature in itself that you know we're contributing to, but in a, in a less broad way, simply because if you put factories in the countryside, you're far away from suppliers, etc. So I think there's a broad range of interesting questions that exist outside of this perhaps direct contribution that we do. Very good. And let me add a couple of things there. When you say about what do managers do, I think that there is especially like a dearth of evidence on what do middle managers do, right? So at the, you know, at the CEO level, there is maybe more evidence, but looking at, at lower levels requires data from inside firms and they are harder to come by. So in that sense, your paper is filling a gap that is wider. And the other thing that I will say is that this thing that you were mentioning about, they are particularly important whenever there are shocks, relates to this notion that managers are there to deal with exceptions. When things are going well and the firms can be on autopilot, they are not necessary, but they are there to take decisions whenever something doesn't go well. Uh, exactly. And I think that in some sense, you, you are capturing that here as well, right? No, precisely. That's it. Yeah. Very good. Thank you, Namrita. Thank you for coming to the program. Thank you very much. This was a lot of fun. Thanks for inviting me. My guest today has been Namrita Kala. My name is Jordi Blanes and this is the Visible Hand podcast. 
please visit our website, thevisiblehand.uk, for links to some other papers that we may have discussed, introductory music and logo by Aitana Blanesiso, episode produced by Anderson Tan.